Greetings, greetings once again to all my enemies and all my friends. That's right, it's the Weekly Worldview, and I'm your host, Doug McBurney. Welcome back. It's the show where we don't take calls. We don't tolerate sponsors. But we do help focus you on the events of the week through the lens of original thought. And it's good to be with you. And we start in the bad religion file right off the bat. No messing around. We're going to get right to it. I know that I'm supposed to follow the recipe, the radio recipe. In, in, in the industry recipe, you give you preview all the stories you're going to talk about in the first eight seconds so that the audience doesn't change the channel. But if you're actually interesting, you don't have to do that. And so my goal is to actually be interesting so that you'll tune in No matter what I'm going to talk about, because you know it's going to be interesting. Not because of all that other. So we're going to get to, immediately we're going to the Army. We're going to get into the bad religion file, where the U.S. Army is practicing bad religion. According to the Federalist, PBS, PBS I said. Now why, the Army and PBS, how is it that they've joined forces Well, they're both departments. They're both bureaucracies in the same government. Always keep that in mind, folks. The Army, even though I know you want to bow down and worship them, they're just a giant government bureaucracy that that happens to, upon occasion, defend what is right and just and good and is worthy of honor in many, many cases. But they're just a giant government bureaucracy. The Army. They've joined forces with PBS, and they've recruited a Black Lives Matter singer named Mickey Guyton to host the Independence Day concert on PBS for the Army. Have you heard of Mickey Guyton, he asked, his extremely attractive audio engineer. Not familiar? Mickey, according to the story, Mickey is a young country singer. Still doesn't ring a bell. Okay. Uh, She became famous for her song, Black Like Me, which uh, featured the the black tile of Black Lives Matter and uh, the same monogram as her Black Lives Matter fellow travelers. Uh, She claims she wrote the song in the wake of George Floyd's death to celebrate the Black Lives Matter movement, and she very well may have written it. Uh, The U.S. Army, along with the National Park Service, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, American Airlines, and the Boeing Company, are providers for the 4th of July PBS concert, and they've hired uh, uh, insurrectionists. What's her name again? I forget her name. This is embarrassing. I just did her name, and I don't... Mickey Guyton, who's apparently famous. I apologize, uh, Miss Guyton, for not not being aware of your fame up until this moment. So, 
Uh, by the way, there. what does this mean? The Federalist says that uh, the Army, PBS, American Airlines, Boeing are providers for the concert. That means they sponsored the concert. And they will pay the communist insurrectionists to publicly hate them on the 4th of July. Which, if you don't see the irony in that, then you need to familiarize yourself with irony. The army has hired a communist to hate on them on the 4th of July on TV, in front of God and everybody. How could this be? Well, the guilt-ridden, flabby saps at the top of the bureaucracy in the army hate themselves, and they're doing penance. I'll get to more of this. Why do they hate themselves so badly? Why do people in the government hate America? I mean, they are America. In one sense, to some degree, they are America. Why do they hate America so much? Because they hate themselves. Why do they hate themselves so much? I mean, I know why they hate me. I get that. I call them out on all the bad things they do. And I want to hold them responsible. So I understand why they hate me. Why do they hate themselves so much? Let's try to get to the bottom of that as we psychoanalyze the bureaucracy. Now, before I get to uh, anything further, am I going to get to anything further? I am. I'm going to get to much things further. Let's go uh, to Cleveland. Speaking of self-hatred, we go to Cleveland, which has every reason to hate itself. No, we love Cleveland. It's a wonderful place. I, I, I was born not far from Cleveland in Buffalo. Cleveland and Buffalo are the same city. At least they smelled the same when I was a kid. They're just uh, different places along the, the lake there, but they're practically the same town. So we go to Cleveland where uh, in the, uh, the insurrection file where the Epoch Times reports that schools in Cleveland are changing the names of their schools and the name changes stem from you guessed it, the 2020 death of George Floyd. Now, that's not true, that the death of George Floyd is causing the government schools in Cleveland to have their names changed. It wasn't the death of George Floyd. George, the death of George Floyd was one event in a generational communist insurrection against the free market and liberty and uh, God bless America and all of that. And that's why they're changing the names of the schools in Cleveland. It's not because they even care about George Floyd. It's because they hate themselves. So the school district there in Cleveland issued a policy regarding naming stuff. Anything. But especially schools. The district in Cleveland now prohibits naming schools, quote, for those who have actively participated in the institution of slavery, systemic racism, the oppression of people of color, women, or other minority groups, or who have been a member of a supremacist organization. If you have been guilty of any or all of the above, your name cannot appear on the marquee of a government school in the Cleveland School District. And so if you were to sit and analyze that paragraph, 
And you would have to ask yourself, okay, have I ever participated in the institution of slavery? Well, except for all that stuff I bought from Walmart last week and the slave labor in China. No, I haven't participated. Uh, Systemic racism. Let's see. Well, I live in America, and I know that America is systemically racist. So, except for participating in all that systemic racism of just being an American, no, I'm not involved in systemic racism. Uh, Have I ever been involved in the oppression of people of color, women, or other minority groups? Well, I mean, except again for living in America, which systemically oppresses people of color, women, and other minority groups. Wait a minute, women? Nobody oppresses women anymore. There are no more women. Let's just cross them out. Let's make sure we don't name any government schools in Cleveland after women, because that would be sexist or transist or I don't transistor. I don't know what that would be, but it would be offensive. Let's see now. Have I ever been a member of a supremacist organization? Hmm. Well, I was a member of a church that claimed that marriage was between one man and one woman. Well, aside from that, no, I have not been involved or a member of any supremacist organization, except, of course, for the church. So, uh, as you analyze the policy there in Cleveland, everyone in this audience, myself included, could never have a school named after us in Cleveland because we're guilty of all these things. And, depending on who's reading the paragraph and who's deciding what the name of the school will be, no one in all of history could qualify to have your name on the marquee of a government school in Cleveland because we're all guilty of all of this pretty much all the time. But especially Thomas Jefferson. That's right. And so the Thomas Jefferson Academy there in the Cleveland government schools will now be known as Natividad Pagan. Now, when you read it, I'm sorry, it reads Natividad Pagan. Academy, which is kind of funny that they're going to name it Pagan Academy. But it's a Latino name, and it's Natividad Payan. Now, so uh, you may have heard of Thomas Jefferson if you matriculated in the government schools. Perhaps you haven't. But if you uh, have been awake and alive for the past uh, 250 years, you might have heard of Thomas Jefferson, uh, but maybe you've never heard of Natividad Payan, the new name there. Well, Payan was a community leader, an administrator, and a school principal. That's Natividad Payan. So that's who she was. A she? Is it a she? We don't know if it's a she. I apologize. Uh, In fact, the article goes out of its way. Not to gender anyone in this article. We don't even know what gender. Uh, we don't even know what gender Thomas Jefferson may have preferred. They avoid pronouns assiduously now. Uh, and of course, by gender I mean sex. I apologize. I don't mean to uh, offend anyone who understands English. Uh, Payan was a community leader, an administrator, and a school principal. Meanwhile, Thomas Jefferson was the lead writer of the Declaration of Independence, the first Secretary of State, second Vice President, and third President of the United States, who was responsible for the Louisiana Purchase. Don't put his name on any schools. I mean, it's a pretty thin resume compared to a community leader, an administrator, (laughs) a school principal. Uh, So down comes Jefferson, up goes Natividad Payan. 
Uh, meanwhile, the Cleveland School Board, by the way, this is reason number 1,975 to get or keep your children out of the government schools. That they might, uh, they might rename the school while your kid is in school. They might name the school after a communist. That's reason number 1,975. The board there in Cleveland has renamed the Patrick Henry School for Stephanie Tubbs Jones. Now, have you ever heard of Stephanie Tubbs Jones? You have to say it as if it's a question. Because, you know. Patrick Henry knew who he was. But Stephanie Tubbs Jones may or may not. Stephanie Tubbs Jones was a lawyer and served in Congress. There you go. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Patrick Henry was one of the founding fathers, best known for his words, Give me liberty or give me death. He was the governor of Virginia and a key figure in the passage of the Bill of Rights. And unlike Stephanie Tubbs Jones, Patrick Henry was not a lawyer. So. And so uh, the cherry on top this week from the insurrection file, the Luis Agassiz School there in Cleveland was renamed Mary Church Terrell School. Mm-hmm. Now, have you ever heard of Luis Agassiz? Maybe not. I mean, unless you uh, got a, a, a degree in biology, unless you were a scientist, if, if you were into zoology, you may have heard of him. I was not familiar with Luis Agassiz by name, so I'm thankful to the Epic Times for reporting on the story so that I could better familiarize myself with yet another great man in history who I was unaware of. I always feel good when I get to read about another great towering intellect in history that I was unaware of. And there's a school named after him in Cleveland because he was a man of renown. But Louis Agassiz, his, he's no longer, his name's been torn down, chiseled out, thrown in the scrap heap, and the school's been named for Mary Church Terrell. Who's Mary Church Terrell? She was an internationally known lecturer, educator, and activist. There you go. Mm-hmm. She, oh no, they gendered her. I hope they didn't misgender her or transformer her or anything like that. Uh, Mary, she was an internationally known lecturer, hmm. an educator, yeah. and an activist. What does that mean? Well, apparently she never had a job or any quantifiable contribution to human existence beyond nagging and complaining. That's, And so now she gets her name chiseled into the school as one of the great nags of all time. Meanwhile, Louis Agassiz was a professor of zoology and geology at Harvard. He founded Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology. But... But, lo and behold, his resistance to Darwinian evolution and the Darwinian theory has led to controversies over his legacy. Recently, and mostly among the pale, flabby, tattooed, and pierced crowd, cringing and sweating Xanax at the student council meeting where our forefathers are being disappeared.
It's the Weekly Worldview, and I'm your host, Doug McBurney. Welcome back to America. While we still recognize it's for the moment, as it's uh, slowly being, um, well, slowly but surely sliding embarrassingly onto the scrap heap of history, which is just sad to watch, and it's even sadder to experience. But fortunately, here at the McBurney Compound, and I want to advise you, or I I don't know if I say advise, I want to remind you that uh, as civilization collapses, that you don't have to be miserable about it all the time. Uh, It's okay to be miserable once in a while, especially when uh, you read a story like I'm about to read. It's almost as if my purpose in life is to make you miserable by reminding you while you're trying to feel good of how lousy things are. But you don't have to be miserable about it all the time. That's one of the great things about life and being alive is that little moments every day are pleasurable and enjoyable all the time. Life is almost always pleasurable and enjoyable almost all the time. So thank God for that. And enjoy the ones you love and the, the planet that God gave us and the experience of life. Enjoy that. Enjoy that. And redeem it, by the way. Redeem the time. Redeem the time. Prepare yourself for the next life by storing treasure there. So we go now uh, to, I'll get back to making you feel lousy. Trying to give you a little inspiration just so I can hit you with this. John Hinckley Jr. has done a television interview. John Hinckley Jr. did a television interview where he expressed remorse for trying to kill Ronald Reagan. uh, The Daily Wire reminds us that John Hinckley Jr. tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan, the President of the United States, on March 30th, 1981 in order to gain the attention of actress Jodie Foster, who I'm sure Jodie Foster is just livid with the fact that this guy is now going to get press. Although, I don't know. I don't know where Jodie Foster comes down. They may end up touring together, for all I know. Uh, at the uh, Present at the assassination attempt was uh, Press Secretary James Brady, who was left partially paralyzed from the attack until he later died prematurely because John Hinckley shot him in the head. Uh, During the interview that John Hinckley did last week on CBS, he said, I feel terrible. If I could take it all back, I would. I swear I would take it all back, he said. (laughs) Uh, He made no mention or allusion to James Brady, who he shot in the head and killed. No, he made no allusion to the man he disfigured and killed in the interview. He just said, uh, I I would like forgiveness from the families, from the Reagan family. He just used families plural. Anyway, he said that as far as forgiving him, he said the families probably can't, but I wish they would. They probably can't forgive me now, said Hinckley. Quote, but I just want them to know I am sorry. I'm glad I did not succeed. Apparently forgetting for a moment that he did succeed in disfiguring, 
crippling and eventually killing one man that he shot in the head. So you did succeed. Have you forgotten? Are you on drugs, son? Uh, John Hinckley said, I did not have a good heart. I was doing things that a good person does not do. So he's managed to give himself at least six degrees of separation from the fact that he shot a man in the head who lived his life crippled and then died. But that's not John Hinckley anymore. That person is dead. In fact, John, John Hinckley said in the interview, psychologically, that person is dead. Quote, I'm a completely different person in mind and spirit. Okay, uh, the host, uh, the CBS host, said that uh, he seemed heavily medicated during the interview. I haven't watched the interview, but uh, John Hinckley has seemed heavily medicated ever since the first time I saw his little bug eyes in the back of the police car after he shot all those people. Uh, anyway, Hinckley now is down to two psychotropic pills a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And says he's a completely different person in mind and spirit, uh, getting ready to release an album and go on tour. John Hinckley, still a liar and still a murderer, just like you were from the beginning, just like your father, the devil, John Hinckley Jr. <laughs> Hinckley's example going forward will be as a punishment that America deserves for her sins. America will celebrate and toast their own destruction. They will even celebrate and toast their own destroyers. It's just like the army and PBS with the Black Lives Matter singer. They're going to celebrate the people who destroy them. John Hinckley Jr. will go on to be a celebrity. He will be celebrated. It's uh, speaking of psychologically and mentally. What did he say? Spiritually and psychologically, a completely different person. That's like Patrick Henry. And now spiritually and psychologically, two completely different nations. And because that nation no longer exists, Howard Stern is saying he will run for president. He may run for president. He may decide to run for president. And it's not just a ludicrous joke on a, on a ridiculous, dirty mouth radio show. People actually take it seriously. Why? Because Donald Trump ran for president after being a staple on the Howard Stern show. So there you go. He may run for president. Says he wants to put an end to the Electoral College. Oh, yeah. He says the uh, Howard Stern. So here we are, circa 2022, quoting Howard Stern on public policy positions. If you want to know how far America has fallen, well, there you go. The only agenda I would have, said Howard Stern, is to make the country fair again. Whatever that means. That's meaningless. It means nothing which qualifies for Howard Stern, I'm sorry, which qualifies Howard Stern for political leadership. He's able to utter strings of words that are absolutely meaningless, which is a prerequisite for service in the federal government these days. 
Uh, you may remember that Howard Stern ran as a candidate for governor of New York back in the 1990s. He dropped out of the race after a court told him he would have to disclose his personal finances. Yes, that's, he didn't want people to find out how much money he wasn't actually worth because he had everyone convinced that he was a genius and he was worth a fortune. When, uh, well, for whatever reason, he would rather not disclose. Well, here we go, folks. How about this? The Stern-Hinkley ticket. Stern-Hinkley 2024. Make the country fair again. Not good, not great, just fair. Eh, fair to Midland, you know. You got a dirty mouth, uh, a puppeteer, and a, and a, and a murderer. That, uh, the Stern-Hinkley ticket, the leadership America deserves. There we go. So we'll have that uh, be a public service announcement that we'll get out on, on PBS as soon as possible. Our, uh, our ringing endorsement of the Stern-Hinkley ticket, the leadership America deserves. All right, meanwhile, let's go to Beijing, where the out-of-the-closet, the fully uncloseted communists uh, rule. This comes to us from the widespread tyranny file where the Chinese Communist Party secretary has told the state media that, the, that they will adhere to the zero COVID policy, which means lockdowns and quarantines for the next five years. Five years, he said. Well, you know how the communists are. Everything's a five-year plan. And I, I'm pretty sure the communists came up with the whole five-year plan thing because they knew that almost everyone they promised something at the beginning of the five years would either be dead or imprisoned by the end of the five years, and then they could start another five-year plan. And then every 10 to 15 years, pretty much everyone would be dead or in prison or just too terrified to say anything, or they'd be on the government payroll. And so the five-year plan has been a habitual function of uh, communist dictatorships. And the latest five-year plan from Beijing includes a zero-COVID policy. Well, that freaked some people out to hear that. The state media there in China immediately deleted his comments and... Uh, censors have been working to scrub the comments from the Internet. But that's not possible because of the way the Internet is. People take screenshots. And so the, the state media and the state states in China is trying to cover up the fact that they're never going to stop with this. They, they found the perfect vehicle for tyranny and dictatorship. And they are going to lord it over people with maximum brutality and force for the rest of their lives. So, but they don't want that to get out because that could be unpopular. And the thing about communist China that we need to keep in mind, and I, I include this in my prayers often, is that their grip on power could evaporate in a moment. In a moment. It could just, it'd just be gone. Like the Soviet Union, like when the, when the wall came down in Germany, some bureaucrat said, well, I think we could open the gate, and then boom, it was over. That could happen in China. And this zero-COVID policy could be the vehicle by which the, 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 the tyrants, the communist 
Chinese, the CCP, finally over, overplay their hand and the Chinese people throw them out. And then there'll be a revival in China. Can you imagine if the 21st century becomes the Asian century led by a Christian on fire revived China? Can you imagine it? Imagine it! Hey, let's reimagine stuff. <laughs> reimagine China as not communist. I love it. All right. Uh, well, so they deleted this uh, secretary's comments. Uh, lockdowns for at least the next five years, and they've tried to scrub them. So uh, the, uh, br- br- the reporters at Breitbart remind us that fear of more lockdowns haunts every city in China, where and, and with many cities still enforcing quarantines to this day. And the governing officials there in China are completely unapologetic about the whole thing, even regarding Shanghai. Yeah. So there is every reason for Chinese subjects to believe they might be living under constant testing, electronic monitoring, restrictions, and lockdowns for five years to come. That's a completely realistic expectation for the Chinese people. And our prayer from our lips to God's ears is that the Chinese finally find the courage to throw off the tyrants and turn to God. And I'm your host, Doug McBurney. I promised my extremely attractive audio engineer that I would not go along with that bumper. But that that guitar solo simply cannot be interrupted. It shall not be. All right. So now we go from there. We're going to jump quickly into the politics file where over in Israel, the government has fallen. Prime Minister Neftali Bennett, his coalition, his governing coalition has come to an end. Everyone's saying, who's Neftali Bennett? I never heard of that guy. That's because they've had five, four, five governments in the last 45 minutes. And uh, his coalition partner, Yair Lapid, another guy nobody ever heard of. He's going to step in as to be the interim prime minister so nobody can, he can become a little bit more obscure. And then they'll have new elections, and unless Benjamin Netanyahu wins, it'll be some other obscure guy that nobody ever heard of. So, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu does plan to run, possibly from a jail cell as he is on trial for corruption, but he hopes to return to power. The Likud party, uh, that's, that's Netanyahu's party, the leftist conservative party in Israel. Yeah, even, even the conservatives in Israel are... a. 0.45 degrees away from being communists. 
That's the conservatives, the Likud. They're on track to win, but probably not enough, and they'll have to make a deal with uh, Satan and Lucifer and the communists and all the fallen angels. And, and then they'll have another governing coalition that will be relatively... In, uh, just, well, the, 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 they'll be obscure except for all the catastrophic, horrific damage they do to, uh, well, just everything that's right and good and true. They're just awful, horrible, horrible, awful communist leftist scum. Um, and uh, I have a quote. And by the way, that doesn't, I'm not just talking about Jews. I'm talking about uh, the Israeli government and, well, leftists in general. You all qualify with the, with the, the folks over in Israel just being a fine example this week because they appear so clownish and buffoonish. They can't even put a government together. Uh, Netanyahu says they carried out an experiment and the experiment failed. That's what Benjamin Netanyahu says about the other leftists, people on his left. And he's so far on the left, he's almost falling into the abyss. But the people to his left, he says their experiment has failed. I would remind Bibi that the same could be said regarding democracy uh, and government in general, uh, devoid of biblical morality like yours is and has been. Why does their government keep falling? Because it's got, it stands for nothing. That's why. Except what? Except what? The exchange of money and favors? Is that? Is it, that's not going to work, folks? All right. So that's embarrassing. Democracy is embarrassing. Government devoid of biblical morality is embarrassing and dangerous, and and, and in the end, catastrophic. Uh, but what what we really need to worry about? What we really need to worry about is brought to us this week from the dispatch. I got this news story from my Yahoo news feed because I have a Yahoo account that is my ulterior account. Alternative account? What would you call it? Ulterior? It's the account I use when I sign up for stuff where I don't actually want to hear about it ever again. And then it's, it's kind of morphed into an account that I actually use now. So anyway, I go and I turn on Yahoo, and every day I get the leftist news feed right there in my face. And this headline hit me right in the face this week, last week, I guess. It says, as Ohio restricts abortions, 10-year-old girl travels to Indiana for the procedure. <gasps> That's horrible. Did those... Dastardly Republicans realized that they were sentencing 10-year-old girls. So I had to open. I clicked the link. And sure enough, right there, three days after the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, Caitlin Bernard, an Indianapolis obstetrician and gynecologist, took a call from a colleague, a child abuse doctor in Ohio. The Buckeye State had outlawed any abortion after six weeks, and now this child abuse doctor had a 10-year-old patient six weeks and three days pregnant. <gasps> oh, say it ain't so. Didn't those dastardly Republicans know that there would be a 10-year-old impregnated three days over their arbitrary limit on abortion services? And now this 10-year-old girl, oh, 
For now, the procedure is still legal in Indiana. Oh, praise and hope for Indiana. <laughs> and so the ten-year-old victim of Clarence Thomas was soon on her way to Indiana to procure a precious abortion. Uh, so there you have the headline and the story, and that's how PBS donors read it. That was read in the voice of a, a PBS lifetime supporter. Okay, so just really quickly, I have heard of obstetrician gynecologist as a medical specialty. I'm familiar. Not, not that familiar. I still identify as a he, him, his. But I've heard of it, okay? But child abuse doctor, I'm not familiar with that one. In fact, it sounds like the author of this article from the Dispatch completely made up this doctor in Ohio. You know, the child abuse doctor. I need to go see a doctor. What kind of doctor? Well, not a child abuse doctor. <laughs> Maybe I need to see a cardiologist. No, are you sure it's not a child abuse doctor? So, after making that up, then the author of the article made up this 10-year-old girl. Just made her up out of whole cloth and made up her pregnancy. And the six weeks and three days sucked out of the tip of his thumb. And then duly put on the page for the PBS donors to read in horror and shock as a 10-year-old girl. Just three days she could have had her abortion. Oh, all right, uh, now the article goes on. Since that Friday, that, that dastardly Friday that will live in infamy, the day they took away our rights. Since that Friday, abortion clinics in Indiana, uh, well, they say they've seen an insane amount of requests from pregnant people. Pregnant people, there it is. All right, all right. If you don't think we're flying off the edge, folks, into a thousand years of darkness, you got another, you better wake up. Uh, let's see, an insane amount of requests from pregnant people in Kentucky and Ohio where it's far more difficult to get an abortion. A ban on abortion after six weeks uh, went into effect. Uh, last week in Ohio. And the two abortion providers in Kentucky shut their doors after the state's trigger law. Banning abortions went into effect. Kentucky patients have been coming to Indiana in higher numbers since earlier this spring when more restrictive abortion laws took effect. Women and pregnant people are crying and distraught, desperate and thankful and appreciative for Indiana. For now, abortion prop providers are doing their best to accommodate all Hoosier patients. Bring us your cold, your tired, your Hoosier babies yearning to be killed. Bring them to us in Indiana. I think Indiana are Hoosiers. I know the Buckeye State. Did you notice how the author used a Buckeye State in the very beginning of the article and then Hoosiers at the end? That's to appeal to the mentality of the average reader who is only familiar with culture about as far as college sports. So just so you can relate, the babies we want to kill are both Hoosier babies and some Buckeye babies because... Those Buckeyes, all right, I'm, I'm done. Now, 
So for some good news on the on the front, on the culture front, is this good news? I hope so. The Texas Supreme Court ruled on Friday that a law from 1925 that made abortion illegal and a crime will be allowed to go into effect. You see, before Roe v. Wade, there was a law in Texas. They put that law in the books in 1925. It said that killing babies is not only bad, it's illegal. And so what happened was the 1925 law was not enforced after Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. But the law remained on the books. And this is where I want you folks to pay attention. This is what happened in America. The Supreme Court issued an opinion in 1973 and the governing officials in states like Texas decided to turn the other way from the laws that they had on the books that made abortion illegal. So it was a theatrical performance in Washington, D.C. that allowed the governing officials in all 50 states to do what was in their black little hearts which was to legalize the murder of inconvenient and unloved people. And so they did. And now another theatrical performance has happened in Washington, D.C., overturning the previous theatrical performance. And suddenly people are looking at the actual law and saying, Shazam! Abortion was illegal! (laughs) Imagine that! I didn't know that. Did you know abortion was illegal before Roe? Shazam, it was illegal afterwards, too. (laughs) But for whatever reason, we all decided to act as if it were not. But it was. Um, And now this article that I got from Breitbart. By the way, I have looked and tried to find the text of this 1925 law because I don't know what it exactly says. But it, it, it seems it can't be found. Nobody wants you to read it. I couldn't find it. I wanted to find it before I went to air because I don't want to say I support it because I don't know what it says. And the the thing about the law, just because it says abortion is illegal, that doesn't mean I can support it until I read it because the way you lawyers write things, I'll end up supporting killing some people and I don't want to do that. But everyone in Texas, as of today, as of the 4th of July, is pretty sure that abortion is illegal and that's a good thing. Because it was the it was the assumption that abortion was legal that led to the murder of 10 or 20 million people in Texas. I don't know, several millions of people. It was the presumption that abortion is not illegal anymore. Not that it actually happened, but that's how it got all those people killed. And now there's a perception that it might be illegal, that it is illegal. And that will that will save some lives. Now, listen to this. Breitbart concludes the article, Texas is one of several states with a trigger law that would criminalizing that would criminalize performing abortions 30 days after the Supreme Court overruled Roe. So pro-life industry hacks for the past few years have invested millions of dollars in these so-called trigger laws so that if Roe's ever overturned, that all the laws they passed regulating child killing wouldn't keep abortion legal they had to cover their own errors they thought but the funny thing is down in texas we didn't need your five million dollar trigger law pro-life industry hacks 
at Texas Right to Life and and the National Right to Life Committee. We didn't need your $5 million, $5 billion, how much, however much of our money you squandered on your trigger law. We didn't need it. Because everybody just woke up and said, Shazam! Turns out we already had a trigger law. It's from 1925. It was from, it was from 25 AD. When everybody knew that abortion was illegal. It's the Weekly Worldview, and I'm your host, Doug McBurney. You want a trigger law, huh? I give you a trigger law. The trigger law should be the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. How's that for a trigger law? All right. So down in Texas, we'll, well, we'll keep our eye on it. We're, we're happy for anything that saves anyone's life because in a real war, actually preventing people from actually being killed is one of the goals, and it's positive but it's not the only goal and it's not worth sacrificing the ultimate goal it's not worth losing the war to save lives it's not and so we go from there to a revolver.news story where last week i declared the folks at revolver as actual conservatives and this week i'm going to well i'm just going to let you know what they said this is from the personhood file In one stroke of the pen, writes Revolver's author, abortion is once again an issue for states to decide on their own. This was a remarkable victory. It's clear there was no public support for overturning Roe or for banning abortion generally, yet the pro-life movement achieved their goal. And All right-wingers can learn a lot from the pro-life movement's formula for success, says the folks at Revolver. All patriotic Americans should be looking to the pro-life movement for lessons on how to succeed. Here are lessons everybody could learn from. Number one, you have to have women involved. Number two, constant state-level action. Numbers, and then he goes through like 20 different lessons. Um... All right, so I would agree with Revolver on number one. You have to have women involved because one thing you'll learn as you read the Bible is that when there are no men to lead, then women are required. So I agree. (laughs) You have to have women involved. Now, when he gets into this constant state-level action, this is where I part ways with my good friends at Revolver.News. Uh, They congratulate the pro-life industry on experimenting with new anti-abortion laws. They didn't just try to limit the range where abortion was legal. They tried all kinds of other tricks, mandatory counseling, then you can kill the baby, waiting periods, and then you can kill the baby, parental or spousal notification laws before you can kill the baby, regulations on abortion clinics where you can then kill the baby. I added the then kill the baby, but that needs to be added because it's implied. 
And when it wasn't just implied, it was explicit in all the laws that the pro-life industry wrote for the last 30 years or so. Do this, this, and this, and then you can kill the baby. And the folks at Revolver.News call that a successful strategy for victory because of the theatrical event that I just referred to. And then the author at Revolver accurately states the following regarding the pro-life industry. Any law could be justified as long as it might prevent even a single abortion. And that's absolutely true. That's the key to the quote-unquote success of the pro-life industry. Therein lies the secret of the pro-life industry's success. How do you win? Abandon principle and move the goalposts. That's how you win. Yes, 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 yes. It became acceptable, folks. It became acceptable. It became acceptable to consent to the murder of a million in order to save one. And the poor guy at Revolver perceives that as a victory. And, and folks, I don't, I, I don't want to condemn you if you're happy that Roe was overturned. I said it's a good thing. It's, a, it's better that we're arguing and fighting about this than not. So the overturning of Roe was a good thing. The, the theatrical events and the opportunities that will be had from it are good and positive. But this is not a strategy for success. Because what that is a strategy for is failure in all the 50 states where now supposedly the pro-life industry is going to make their... I think this is how their kids are going to build their retirement funds, is, is going out and regulating abortion in all 50 states. All right, so let's go now to Alec Baldwin's life, which is an easy target. He was in the news this morning, and I didn't even read the story. Because you know what? It's just too easy. And I need to be more aware of my own shortcomings, and flogging Alec Baldwin's manifold shortcomings doesn't do me any good. And so I'm not going to talk about Alec Baldwin on the show today. I'm going to talk about his daughter, Ireland. Alec Baldwin has a daughter named Ireland. This is the same girl who years ago, the, the voicemail, the taped voicemail came out during one of Alec Baldwin's divorces. And it was where he called his daughter all these horrible things. Just awful. You remember, right? You all heard the tapes of Alec Baldwin demeaning and defiling his own flesh and blood. It's just awful. This is her. That daughter has now grown up. She's now 25, 6, 7 years old. She's a model. Imagine that. So she's in the house. She's a, she is a cog in the Hollywood machine. That's what her father and mother wanted for her, and that's what she has. So Ireland Baldwin is a cog in the machine, and she said, quote, in an interview last week, she said, quote, I chose to get an abortion because I know exactly what it felt like to be born between two people who hated each other. Unquote. Oh, this wasn't an interview. This was a TikTok video. Tell me it's not the end of the world. You can now interview yourself on the internet. And, and, and millions of people will watch. Okay, maybe it's, maybe it's the beginning of something good. Maybe it's not the end of the world. 
I guess it all depends on who's TikToking. Uh, anyway, so she says, I got an abortion and I'm glad. Damn it. Listen to this. Listen to what she said, though, in the video. Could I have had that baby and put that baby up for adoption? Maybe. Maybe not. But choosing to raise a baby without my own financial security, without a loving and supportive partner, that wasn't going to work for me. I chose me. And I would choose me again. It's your life. It's your choice. Damn it. And so it's interesting how she sandwiched in the middle of that statement what's the most on her mind. So she says, I chose abortion. I'm glad. It's my life. I chose me. I would do it again. But in the middle of that, she said, could I have had that baby and put that baby up for adoption? Maybe. That's the most thing that's on her mind more than anything else is that thought right there. You see, she can sandwich it in, in between in the middle of all her shouting and I'm glad and I chose me. She can say all she wants. But there's a reason she, that crossed her lips. There's a reason that, uh, that she uttered that statement. Could I have had that baby and put that baby up for adoption? Maybe. Because that thought, that fact, haunts her now and will haunt her for the rest of her life. Baldwin mentioned, by the way, Ireland Baldwin, Alec Baldwin's daughter, or the daughter of Alec Baldwin and some actress that he divorced. I don't know her name. Uh, Bald Ireland Baldwin mentioned that she was raped when she was a teenager. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And she says here, quote, I was completely unconscious when it happened, unquote. Uh, forgetting, perhaps, that getting drunk and waking up realizing what you had done does not actually qualify as rape. Although I guess it does these days. Um, anyway, how, now, I don't want to be accused of how dare you suggest that she was drunk. Okay, well, she did say she was completely unconscious. And then right after that, she says, I totally spiraled after that. I lost control. I drank a lot more. I drank more than, like, the night I was raped. I was in other abusive and toxic relationships. And so the, the sad thing for Ireland Baldwin is that no one's going to tell her. No one's ever told her. And no one in her immediate circle of family, friends, advisors, no one's going to tell her that all relationships that involve sex outside of marriage are toxic, abusive relationships. And that's all you're going to get. So stop it. But nobody's, nobody's going to tell her that. So uh, if anybody has her number, text this. Maybe post it to her TikTok. You can probably post a uh, comment to her TikTok. Because she needs to hear this. Very sad, very sad. And you know what? You know what else is sad? And I've done my fair share of, of flogging Alec Baldwin. But you know what's sad that Alec Baldwin is getting in old age, he's getting the old age he deserves. His children are murdering his grandchildren and bragging about it. Tell me Alec Baldwin doesn't deserve that. Does, any, does anyone actually deserve that? I mean, that's horrible. Your children murder your grandchildren, and they're proud of it. You know what's sad is the realization that Alec Baldwin deserves that. And then it's sickening to know that he's actually experiencing it. 
It's not an academic exercise, and it's not a theatrical event. This is real life. Alec Baldwin's kid murdered his grandkid and then shoved it in his face. Wow. Pretty sad. Okay. Uh, speaking of all that in the culture and theatrics, R. Kelly was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Yes, R. Kelly, who sang about raping and molesting women for 30 years. Everyone was shocked to find out that he was raping and molesting women. And then all everything that they had paid him to promote for 30 years, they turned around and condemned him for it. And they've thrown him in jail over it. And they've called him a criminal over it. They were paying him for it last year. In fact, he's probably still collecting royalties on it right now. <laughs> and uh, it's criminal. And now it's criminal. Okay. Uh, uh, one of the many, many stories, this one appeared in the New York Post. A backup dancer testified against him, said, you are shameless, you are disgusting, you are self-serving, said a backup singer who, uh, a backup dancer who danced in the videos where he's raped and molested all those women. She was in the videos. <clears throat> wow. Uh, let's see, the New York Post author goes on to remind us that R. Kelly is functionally illiterate. Huh, Interesting. Wasn't it Michael Savage who pointed out that, that you don't even have to speak English and you can make $50 million? And now here we have R. Kelly proving that is literally true. He's an Ill, a functionally illiterate person who made $50 million singing about raping and molesting women. And that turned on the record executives and all the people in the marketing and the cultural media industry. They all got turned on by it and they liked it. And they knew the kids would love it. They'll line up for it, baby. And they sold it and sold it and sold it and sold it. And then they declared it criminal and threw him in prison over it. Uh, R. Kelly had a, an impoverished childhood that included him being shot by a stray twenty-two bullet. Okay. The New York Post. He was shot by a bullet, huh? All right. And he witnessed the death of a childhood friend who was shoved into the river and drowned. That's not a death. That's actually a murder. He witnessed the murder of a childhood friend. So R. Kelly is the product of the last 50 years of America's cultural rot. And I'm sorry, America, you're not going to be able to just shove it into a cage and lock it up and act like everything's okay. It's not going to work. No, 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 no. You're going to have to pay for your sins. Uh, by the way, R. Kelly uh, collaborated in public with the blessing of the, the entire pop culture. He, he collaborated with Lady Gaga, Jay-Z, Aaliyah, Tony Braxton, Destiny's Child. He is their number one product. And you, you don't get to just shove that in jail and say, well, that's terrible he did that. No. <laughs> Meanwhile, from Law and Crime in the Justice File, here's a headline for you. Convicted killer gets life. No irony intended by the headline writer. And for the most part, on behalf of the readers, none taken. Nobody really gets it. Matthew, I'm sorry, Michael, Michael Thomas Lang, 
convicted of first degree murder in the death of Jim Smith. The death of? How can you be convicted in the murder of murder in the death of someone? By definition, it's the murder of someone now. No irony intended, none taken. Jim Smith was a 51-year-old husband and father, a veteran of the Iowa State Patrol. He was murdered by Michael Thomas Lang. So Michael Thomas Lang was sentenced to life without parole, plus 25 years, plus five years. Did you get that? Life without parole, plus 25 years. That was for another attempted murder. And in addition to the life without parole and the 25 years, five more years for assaulting a peace officer. So I I just want to ask if I'm allowed to point out that adding years to a life without parole sentence, just the act of doing that calls into question the credibility of that sentence. Does, Does anyone else notice that? How can you say life without parole plus anything... And then someone says, but wait a second, you said life without parole. Okay, no, because in fact, we know that life without parole doesn't actually mean that anymore. It's just, uh, it's a checkmark box that card punch that gets punched. It's a box that gets checked or punched or whatever. But it doesn't actually mean life without parole. And, and and here's the thing, Judge, by adding 25 years and then adding five years and then life without parole, you're not only undermining your own credibility and the credibility of your court and the credibility of the sentence, but you're undermining the credibility of the justice system, which means you're undermining the credibility of justice, which means you're a criminal, your honor. When you purposely undermine the credibility of justice, you become a criminal. And you're a more dangerous criminal than Michael Thomas Lang, who could only kill one guy at a time. All right. Um, anything else from this story from lawandcrime.com? The shooting occurred on April 9th, 2021. So just another example of urinalism. Uh The murderer has actually already been convicted, Mr. Urinalist. So you can call it a murder now. But the urinalist still won't call it a murder even after the conviction. Because why? The urinalist has been convinced that he can't actually know anything. And that it's his job to convince other people that they can't actually know anything. It's the opposite of what journalism should be. Journalism used to be the writing down of things in a journal so that we could know things. But journalism has become an exercise in convincing everyone that none of us can know anything. And that's journalism. All right, that's the Weekly Worldview. I'm your host. Uh, Well, you already knew that. I will... uh... I will look forward to getting together with you again. I want to thank my friends at Real Science Radio and at American Right to Life and my other brother, Daryl, who I hope is still listening from the great beyond. Should the Lord tarry, we will return next week. And until then, may the grace of God go with you and may the peace of Jesus Christ be upon you. <laughs>